Today we continue our series, uh, Risen Indeed, which is both a reflection on the Sermon on the Mount and it is a response to the glorious news of Easter that Christ is risen. Try that one again. Christ is risen. So we too shall rise. In the meantime, we are called to live resurrected lives. That is, lives that are marked by the resurrection. So uh, last week, we focused on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 on being uh, salt and light. And I would like to thank everyone for their prayers. If you missed last week, uh, you can check it out on the podcast. But in the midst of the sermon, I had an especially raw moment. And I appreciate very much the way you all cared for me and the well wishes that I've received since. Uh, If you're curious, it's three more days. (laughs) That is, until Angela returns. Uh, Things are getting better. One of the cool things, uh, just to kind of recap last week just a bit, one of the cool things about salt is that although it can dissolve into water and food, it doesn't take much salt to make something salty. Uh, especially cool is the fact that salt never really loses its, uh, its texture. That is, if you um, have a glass of salt water and the water evaporates, evaporates, you still get the salt crystals so that they're still there. Their integrity is intact, which is very much the same way I think we, uh, by the word of Jesus, become salt and light in the world. That is, we're in the world. We can make the world salty, we can make the world kind of taste with the flavor of God, but we don't kind of lose our integrity in the process. We maintain our consistency, and I think that's a beautiful thing. Uh, Light is also amazing. Uh, This week I took the girls to A Wrinkle in Time. Uh, Madeline Lingle's uh, book has been made into a movie, and I know it came out uh, quite a while ago, but we never made it, and uh, I like to go to matinees anyway because they're cheaper. So, yeah. So uh, Thursday afternoon, uh, we loaded up the van, and we went to see A Wrinkle in Time. And in it, there was a quote from Rumi, uh, the Muslim poet, that says, The wound is the place the light enters you. The wound is the place the light enters you. I think that is so true, that uh, that is the point at which it comes in, and I think it's also the point at which it goes out. Uh, This week... We'll be focusing on Matthew, a passage from Matthew chapter 6, which includes um, Jesus' teaching on prayer. The chapter opens uh, like this. This is the passage before the passage on prayer. This is uh, Eugene Peterson's translation. Uh, Be especially careful when you're trying to do good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure, play actors, I call them, treating prayer meeting and the street and street corner alike as a stage, acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, true, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, Don't think about how it looks. Just do it, quietly and unobtrusively. That is the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. 
So this is uh, instructions on when we do good, not to make theater out of it, not to kind of draw attention to ourselves, but just to do it faithfully, obediently, quietly. And on the heels of that come this teaching on prayer. And again, following uh, Eugene's translation, it says this, here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can, as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense His grace. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you are dealing with. He knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply. I love uh, verse 7. Uh, it says this in a different translation. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Now growing up, I was pretty sure that the exact opposite of that was true. That is, the more words you use, the better your prayer was. Anybody else felt that way? In fact, I would hear other people pray, and they would say a lot of words, a lot of nice words. They kind of sounded poetic. And I thought, now that is a good prayer. Prayer, 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 yeah. That, is, that person's good at praying, is what I would think. But that seems to be just the opposite of, of what the Scripture here seems to be teaching. I remember particularly, and, and forgive me if, and if you um, have heard this or you prayed this yourself, my, my father seems would seem to be off, my, my physical father, my biological father, would often seem to be called on to either pray for the offering or to pray uh, like the benediction. Like in our church, the minister didn't always do that. And then it would come out like this. Father, we thank you today, Father, for all those who are here, Father. And Father, we pray, Father, that you'll be with us, Father, as we go out today, Father, and be with us, Father, the rest of this week, Father, and Father, until we come back, Father, the next week, Father. And, and that was like a common prayer. And I thought, that's the way I'm supposed to pray. And then I thought, maybe that's a little bit of vain repetition. Like, maybe there's another way of being. In Luke 18, there's this interesting parable. It talks about a tax collector and a Pharisee who have both come. And the Pharisee's praying, oh, Lord, thank you for making me the way I am. And Lord, thank you for not making me the way that joker is, right? But the, the tax collector kind of hid in the corner and beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So here's the challenge, I think, for us. Sometimes in our rawest moments, we might too beat our chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But I'm afraid too often, not only are we not like the Pharisee, but we sometimes pat ourselves on the back and say, Lord, thank you that I'm not self-righteous like that Pharisee. <laughs> right? Thank you that I don't make the mistakes like that guy does who thinks he has it all right. 
Like, we're, we're like worse than the Pharisees. Like the Pharisees, we could follow and get a little bit better than what we do sometimes. Maybe I'm just talking to myself. I'm not sure. But if that hit you, then hold on to that. So, um, verse 8, the next verse, is also very helpful. It says, For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We have to guard against this idea that somehow when we pray, we're giving God a good idea that God didn't already have. Right? It's like, oh, Lord, would you please provide my friend a job? Man, that's a good idea I said that to God because, you know, he wouldn't have known what to do otherwise. (laughs) Right? Somehow, we, we think that our prayers are so efficacious, so needed, so effectual, right? That it's our prayers that are kind of prompting God to do what's right. God doesn't need us to prompt to do what's right. Yeah? God loves us. God wants to engage with us. We get to participate with God in in doing good things and right things. But it's not like we're having the ideas that God would not have otherwise. I think Jesus experiences this himself, right? Jesus gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, hey, let's do this differently. (laughs) You know, uh, let this cup pass from Pass by me, right? I don't, I don't want to go down this road, is his prayer. Like, I'm not sure what he wanted to do. Maybe go back to Galilee. Maybe, maybe um, hitchhike over to Jordan. I'm not sure what was in Jesus' mind, but he seems to want to not be there and not go that direction. But he continues to pray until he's able to say, Father, not my will, but yours. Right? His prayer works because his prayer kind of changes his own desires. Um, C.S. Lewis is often quoted as saying he doesn't pray, or didn't pray, to change God, but to change himself. And I think that's very close to what Jesus might have been experiencing, or that is, that Lewis experienced something similar to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But don't mishear me. I think God does respond to our prayers, uh, sometimes with a yes, Uh, sometimes with a no, uh, sometimes with some silence. But even silence is a response. Uh, I just don't think God needs our advice. Uh, Let's look at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We've sung it and we've prayed it uh, and we've said it in the call to worship. But as I was growing up, again, I was taught that this was a model. Like this showed us how to pray, but not what to pray. In fact, uh, growing up, we never said the Lord's Prayer together in church. That's not something that we did. Um, we, were, we were afraid, interesting enough, of rites and rituals. Uh, we thought that they were kind of dead and dry. And so we tried our very best not to do anything in kind of repetition. That's what we said. Now, every Sunday, we, we, we behave mostly the same way, but... We didn't write that down, and we, we imagined ourselves doing something different every time. But anyway, um, I've actually grown uh, increasingly since then appreciative of, of prayers, not just my own kind of spontaneous, you know, God help me kind of prayers, uh, prayers of petition where I'm asking God for something, or prayers of thanksgiving where I'm thanking God for something, or prayers of intercession where I'm, you know, praying on behalf of someone. But 
but thoughtful prayers, uh, prayers that kind of are repeated and, and prayers that have been written, whether by someone else or, or by me. Um, last uh, summer, uh, as I was kind of reflecting on, on my career, I decided that I would introduce um, into my teaching at the college a new spiritual practice. So I've written prayers for each class that I teach. And we, we open each class with that prayer. And so I thought I might just share some of those with you. I, I teach a class, or, or did, called Christ Culture in the University. It's a course that's designed to introduce students to college uh, in general and more specifically to Christian college. And so this is the prayer that we prayed in each class session. Holy God, who has made us in wonderful, made us in ways wonderful and marvelous, create in us a curiosity to know you, to know your world, to know one another, and to know ourselves. Inspire our minds, soften our hearts, empower our hands to do your will and to work for your kingdom on earth. Fill us with gratitude for what you do for us, compassion for others and your world, courage to respond to the world with peace and justice, joy to celebrate your healing, and hope that your, uh, your coming will make all things right. Uh, another, this comes from a course on New Testament survey. And I saw some New Testament survey students in here today. You don't have to identify yourselves, that's all right. <laughs> we, we open that class with this. God of heaven and earth, you have sent your Son and Spirit to save and renew the world. Your Spirit has inspired the apostles to bear witness to Jesus and to the fulfillment of your story, which is recorded in the scriptures of old. We pray that your Spirit may inspire us as we study this New Testament, its history, literature, and theology. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us understand how this message should shape our beliefs and practices. Uh, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth and in the presence of the Spirit. Amen. Uh, one other. This one was written not for class, uh, but for us. So on Palm Sunday... That um, service ended with a prayer. That prayer I wrote uh, for us. I mean, it was for that service, but this is what we prayed together on Palm Sunday. God of heaven and earth, you are great and worthy of our praise and devotion. We are grateful for the gift of your son, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Through his life, death, and resurrection, you have worked your great salvation. Give us faith to respond to your grace. Help us perceive the depths of your love. Fill us with compassion so that we too may live like Christ lived, empowered by your spirit. We commit ourselves to you and your gospel. We pray in the name of Jesus and in the presence of the spirit. Prayer, uh, I was told in seminary, is the primary theological function. Right? It, it is what we all do. Right? It is what we're made for. Right? We pray to God and we worship God. That's, that's kind of what we're made for. The Westminster uh, Confession has 114 uh, questions and answers. Anybody from that kind of Reformed tradition? No? All right. Well, the Westminster Confession 
uh, I went to a Presbyterian undergrad school, uh, has 114 questions and answers. I once memorized them all uh, for a scholarship. I didn't do it for fun. Um, <laughs> but if you memorized all 114 questions and, and their answers, uh, that would get you $200. And then you could write, you entered an essay competition that would get you another $800. And for that $1,000, uh, I went to Israel. Now, granted, that was, you know, um, well, a long time ago. Um, but the first, the first question is, what is the chief end of a human being? Like, what are we here for? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. We come to church to worship God. If you're coming to church for some other reason, uh, that needs adjustment. <laughs> like, you, you should be coming to church to worship God. There are other benefits that come with coming to church, right? You get to sing songs. You get to see your friends. You get, hopefully, to hear some good sermons. You get to take communion. But, but we're coming to church to worship God. That's, that's our primary goal as we come. And then to pray. Everything else we do is kind of either a response to that or a reflection on it. But this, this is like as central as it gets. So let's look at this, this prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. To, to rift a bit off of what um, Levi was saying earlier as he served communion, the Lord's Prayer is written in the first person plural. Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not to temptation. Rescue us from the evil one. Right? All of that is first person plural which means that this idea of the Lord's Prayer, like you might pray it alone, like by yourself somewhere, but even that, if you're praying it correctly, you're still praying it communally, right? Because it's still for us, right? It's the idea that you're not just praying for yourself. You're praying for your community. This is how that prayer is written. Now, you can pray a similar prayer, perhaps, in the first person singular. But it's not the Lord's Prayer. And it might, be a, it might be a good prayer. I'm not saying don't pray it. I'm just saying the Lord's Prayer is in the first person plural. And I think that teaches us a lot about how God wants us to pray. That our prayers are for, not just for us individually, but for us collectively. Then it says this, um, your kingdom and your will come upon earth as it is in heaven. Now let's pause there for just a second. If we're praying for God's kingdom to come, which is the good news, right? Jesus says, hey, here's the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. If we're praying for God's kingdom to come and we're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then in some way that seems as though that God's will is not always done on earth. That, that God's kingdom is not fully established on earth. And if that's a challenging thought for you, then watch the news. Listen to the pain that people go through. Do you think that's the kingdom of God? I mean, there's, there's disasters there's personal tragedies. There's diagnoses of, of diseases that are terminal. There are children that get abandoned. There, there are people who suffer violence. 
That's not the will of God. That's not what the kingdom looks like. That's the result of sin, right? That's the result of our brokenness. But our hope and our prayer is that the kingdom of God as it is in heaven and the will of God as it is in heaven will come and be in the same way on earth. And if you keep reading, right, past Matthew, eventually you get to the end of this story and that's exactly what happens. The final passage in the Bible is a story of the New Jerusalem, the city of God, coming down. The kingdom of God and the will of God coming on earth as it has been in heaven. It's the, the new creation. The, the making, that, in a way, the answering of that prayer. It also says this, and this is an interesting one. Give us daily bread today. It's an interesting kind of, uh, like, give us daily bread, makes sense, or give us bread today, makes sense. But what does it mean to say, give us daily bread today? It's a little redundant. So, uh, a lot of people, I imagine, have read that prayer, or even prayed that prayer, in such a way that they think they're asking for sustenance. You know, give me enough to kind of make it through the day. And I think if we just had reference to, to either the daily bread or to today, that that makes sense. But I'm not alone amongst biblical scholars who suggest that the double play on that is um, a prayer for more than sustenance. That sustenance represented the old covenant, but that abundance represents the new covenant. That Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly not just enough to scrape by so we don't starve to death, but that we could have life and it could be full, that we could have bread enough to share with others, that we could live a life full of joy and full of hope and full of kindness and full of love and full of mercy. Like, that's the prayer of the kingdom. Jesus is not, Jesus is not saying, hey, let's pray that we barely make it. Let's pray that we just get by, that we don't starve tomorrow. <laughs> right? That's, that's not this prayer, I think. He's, he's moving beyond the daily manna that I think might have been resonating in the Hebrew minds of his original hearers. And he's offering them the hope of the kingdom. Give us daily bread today. Load us up. And then it says this. In, in Matthew, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So Luke will say uh, sins. And so we, we often kind of move quickly to this idea that the prayer is a prayer that's spiritual. Now certainly prayer is spiritual. But our lives are more than just our spiritual lives. We, we live a physical embodied life. And at least in Matthew's account of this story, it's forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that group of people would have been suffering from unbearable debt. I mean, they, they had lived in a, an agrarian culture of exchange. And then all of a sudden, now they're occupied by a foreign country who says that now they own the land that had belonged to your grandfather's grandfather's grandfather. And they want you to pay taxes on it. Well, you've been living enough just to kind of barter for your existence. And now you owe money to a foreign government? 
it, it would have been enough to kind of bury them in debt. Like, like unimaginable. Like, nev- we're never going to get out of this. My, my grandchildren will be in debt for this. We'll never get out of it. When the zealots, not that we're endorsing kind of the violence of the zealots, but when the zealots uh, took the temple in the first Jewish war, this is about the time the Gospel of Mark is being written, the first thing they did was burn the records of debt so the Romans wouldn't know who owed what, right? So these folks are being crushed by it. And so when Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, it's not that I don't think they understood that spiritually. I think they did. But it, it resonated with like, whew, man, wouldn't it be good if we didn't know that? And rescue us from evil. I prefer that translation over deliver us from evil. Because deliver us from evil sounds like I'm in no real danger. You know, our Father, deliver us from evil. Right? That's what you say when you're safe and comfortable and all is well. Right? But the word also means kind of rescue. Rescue us from evil. We need you. We can't do this without you. you know, our prayer is, God, that you and your kingdom and your will will come. And that you'll do these things that only you can do. Now, it would be really nice if that passage of Scripture just ended with an amen, uh, but it doesn't. Uh, Verses 14 and 15 close off this teaching, and it says this. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Is that true? I mean, did Matthew get that part right? Because I, cause we, I know we didn't do that. We didn't talk about this part when I was a kid. Because I, I mean, come on. Look, I love this metaphor used in Scripture to talk about the divine human relationship. Right? This idea of the parent. This idea of the family. You know, Paul says in Romans 8 that we will receive the spirit of adoption. Now, there are a lot of metaphors for what it means to kind of go from a non-believer to believer, from a non-Christian to a Christian. You know, initiation into the kingdom. Sometimes we say saved. Sometimes we say born again. But those are the same thing, right? Sometimes we say redeemed or regenerated. Uh, Sometimes we talk about becoming a new creature. I mean, all of these are metaphors used in Scripture that talk about kind of becoming a part of the group, yeah? But one of the metaphors used in Scripture about what it means to become a part of the group is adoption. And as I talked about last week, we're in the process of adoption, and it hasn't all been completely easy, right? But in a way... Uh, we're all kind of born and we all participate in this thing called sin. And part of what coming into this new family is just that, right? We're being adopted. There's an adoption day that's, you know, in our future. (laughs) 
And, and part of what adoption means is living in a new family, is having a new father, is learning the, the, the language and the customs and the practices and the beliefs of this new crew that we're with. It's, it includes getting a new name. And I think all of those things are part of what we get to experience with our Heavenly Father. That our character can be shaped into His character. His character is one full of mercy. You know, the scriptures say mercy triumphs over justice. Our Father is a forgiver. That's what He does. That's who He is. He's full of grace and full of love and full of mercy, and He forgives. So we too, as we're filled with His Spirit, are shaped and transformed so that we too then become agents of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Now look, <clears throat> I know forgiveness isn't easy, and sometimes I don't even think I have the capacity to forgive. Like, I don't think I can do it myself. So I pray, God, help me forgive. Our Father, as I said, is a forgiver. My prayer for you this week is that you would be aware of the presence of God, that you would breathe deeply, that you would be sensitive to His Spirit that not just with your words and thoughts, but with your presence, with, with your inner being, that you might continually be conscious, even in your subconscious, of the love of God. Amen.